Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Thank you for joining us today. With me is Myrna Leisure Epic, who is the board president of the Simmering Center in Missouri. It is a recovering housing facility housing 43 people nightly, as well as a 10-bed respite care facility. We're very grateful to have her here. But one thing that we are very, very happy to report, Myrna received the 2023 Missouri Mental Health Champions Award. Each year, three remarkable Missourians who have overcome many challenges to make life better are selected to receive the Missouri Mental Health Champions Award in Jefferson City. The presentation was made on May 9, 2023 at an awards banquet at the Capitol Plaza. Welcome to the podcast, Myrna. Well, thank you, Victor. Thank you so very much for inviting me. Well, I've known Myrna for many, many years. Uh, she's an amazing person who has been so open about her journey, about her life. Deep personal loss in her life contributed to her dependence on alcohol. And over the last 30 plus years, she has dedicated her life to serving others by working and volunteering in the treatment and recovery support sector. She's been a speaker to many of our functions within a church and outside. She started driving a van in her early recovery, eventually becoming an executive director and then owner of Sober Living Homes. Myrna has received numerous awards for her service in the field of recovery. And Myrna's goal is to see others find the peace and success that she has found in her own recovery. Her efforts have significantly impacted the lives of those in the Branson community. Her dedication not only to the Simmering Center, but to the entire treatment and recovery community has helped to ensure access to model recovery housing and supports. So welcome, Myrna. That's quite an introduction, but I felt like I had, I had to share with our audience you know, who you are, because I truly feel you're one of the most remarkable people that I have met on a personal level and also on the professional level. So we welcome you here to speak to us. Well, thank you. The award was a really big surprise. I uh, I was pretty overwhelmed by it. And um, when I finally figured out that's what the phone call was about, I just burst into tears because I just try and show up and do a good job for the people I serve. And, you know, I've, I did mention um, when I received the award, I think God's grace and mercy is that I have been introduced to some real champions in the field of recovery from the time I started. They mm -hmm. are well regarded and uh, some of them are no longer alive, but they are well regarded and um, still quite influential, even though they're no longer alive. And I get to stand on those shoulders and then I also have some shoulders I get to lean on, Vic. Um, uh -huh. I have colleagues that, again, they are just incredible mentors, and they have shared their knowledge with me to help make me better at what I do. And those colleagues and my family members, they've been here for me as I, as I do this work. And because of those shoulders that I just described, I've become the shoulder for other people to lean on and to be a part of their lives as they start to move forward, whether it's in their own recovery or I have mentored and supervised younger people getting their, their counseling certification, et cetera. And I get to pay it forward as they say. And I know it's because 
of God's immense grace and redemption years ago when I was given the opportunity to change my life and embrace sobriety. Well, we're certainly grateful that what's happened in your life, and you've told us about your sobriety and have talked to us about the personal benefits to you, but also how it has been so helpful in others to understand alcoholism, to understand what it is. And I know that people sometimes do not agree with what it is, but you certainly have shown it to be what it is and have found solutions for it. And to me, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, in how it, how it comes out and how it's solved. And we really appreciate that, Myrna. Thank you, Victor. I, um, I still continue to participate in a path of recovery, and um, I still try and give of my time to help people just beginning their journey of sobriety. Well, I know that when you gave lectures to us, you gave lectures to uh, groups of ministers around the country. We have truly appreciated that, and I have some some of that information stored on, on video and just appreciate the heart that you have put into it. But it's not only been alcohol, but it's been other addictions that you would speak about. A and lately, what we talked about here just uh, recently about what we might want to talk about today is about the opioid crisis in our country, which has come really to the fore because of opioids uh, coming across the border and, and many, many thousands of people a year dying of opioid overdose. So uh, maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Maybe you could introduce us to some of the work that you're doing there. So the opioid crisis became a big deal, and I'll tell you why, as it hit mid middle-class America. You know, opioids are prescribed by a doctor. After all, what could be wrong with that? But we do know from various, there have been lawsuits, et cetera, around the prescriptions and around the um, manufacturers of opioids that they were overprescribed. It's really important for us to understand that opioids were developed for stage four bone cancer. And, um, you know, what's good for one thing is good for another. And it began to be used across the spectrum of pain, but it was never designed for that. Other things that occurred was that hospitals and healthcare providers began to use the pain as the fifth vital sign. Mm -hmm. So they were scored on how you ranked your pain. You said your pain was high while well, they got a lower ranking. So they started prescribing op opioids more frequently because of that. Uh -huh. And that is one of the things that caused the opioid crisis to hit a different socioeconomic part of our culture. Mm -hmm. About uh, 25, 30 years ago, I remember when I lived in uh, Kentucky, I saw so many pain clinics, which I don't see so much right now. Were these basically places where treatment was done with opioids in a very special way that people were given hope that something miraculous was found to it? It was pain? part of it. Uh -huh. You know, there's other pain medications that are utilized, but what happened with that then it was it wasn't um a street drug at that time it but it quickly became one because people would sell it to get more they would go to more than one doctor to get more i've seen patients come in that not only were they buying it off the street but they were getting about 300 of them a month from their prescriber wow that's why it became such a big deal it was no longer those drug addicts. It was your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And then 
people were committing crimes, they were burglarizing neighborhoods, et cetera, to get the drugs. And it hit mainstream America, so to speak, unlike street drugs. And basically, of course, opioids are just a manufactured form of a heroin like an opioid, an opiate similar to heroin. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it caught national attention because it was hitting a different socioeconomic level. And I'm not trying to say that we didn't care about people who were addicted and on the streets, but it's different when it's next door. Yeah. And there have been some lawsuits with the pharmaceutical companies, and a lot of money has been infused into states, including Missouri, to help treat the opioid crisis. Of note of that, in 2021, I think I read um, in our magazine, there were 120,000 deaths from opioid overdoses. What's important to those of us in the boomer generation is that 20% of those were senior citizens. Mm-hmm. Well, why? Well, senior citizens have pain. They have arthritis. They have procedures, they have knee replacement, and they use an opioid. Uh But that's not all. In the senior citizen age group, most people take somewhere between one and 15 medications, depending on their diabetes, cholesterol, heart disease, blood thinners, diuretics, et cetera, et cetera. So you have an older American, an older person, not just American, but their bodies are not as healthy as they were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. They're taking all these medications. The body functions are slowing down. It's a natural part of the aging. Then you add to that cocktail of medication that are prescribed for some other physical aim- ailments. You add opioids to that. The body can't handle it. Mm-hmm. And then we end up with a quote-unquote crisis. And so I think that's one of the reasons it is being perceived that senior citizens have a larger amount of overdoses. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, the opioid was the last medication they took, but their bodies are not healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't metabolize anything as well as I used to because my body's getting older. Mm -hmm. And I think we have minimized in our culture we like to think of drug addiction as those people and we usually think of them as being younger the opioids brought it to a different place Mm -hmm. well when you think of uh, the demographic and purpose of drugs even if you don't aren't in pain just to feel good they definitely are. So, and Mexico have picked up on that a long time ago and they're importing it through pipelines whether in California or um, starting through Texas. So, for instance, here in Missouri, that comes up through Texas. There's a distribution point east of um, where I live. From there, it's channeled north to Kansas City, St. Louis, Chicago, et cetera. They're supplying as much as they can sell. Mm -hmm. It's big money for the cartels. And it seems to be out of control, you would say, where nothing is? Absolutely. Uh-huh. You know, here we are in July of 2023, and with not only the border crossing of people, but also the drugs that we hear about it every day in the news to the point of where your mind is dulled by the amount of bad news, but you don't even want to hear it anymore. Right. 
And, you know, at the same time, when we bring up these numbers, Vic, I really want to say that the n amount of opioid overdose overdoses is truly appalling and shocking and sad. But at the same time, 175,000 people died as a direct result of alcohol consumption mm -hmm. and alcoholism. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people, yeah. And I want to comment that Again, we minimize alcohol. It's legal. Mm -hmm. I should be able to have a cocktail. 175,000 deaths in a year. And that's been going on for decades. But we still like to think of alcohol as a benign substance. Mm -hmm. And I know there's a right and safe way to drink. But again, you look at that same senior citizen who is taking diabetes, cholesterol, um, heart medication, uh, all kinds of medication to treat various kidney disease, you know, heart patients that are trying to balance lung, heart, and kidney function. Then you add alcohol to the p picture, and again, it's a dangerous cocktail. Mm -hmm. Well, the data shows that even moderate use can exacerbate uh, health conditions. Well, I know when you gave your presentations, uh, I think that uh, it, it's shocking, really, uh, about alcohol, how it affects different people. You know, we're supposed to drink in moderation, and and uh, it seems like uh, people who just have one drink or, you know, two and, and, and stop, and that's okay. It's kind of just like food. But for many, many people, <laughs> that is not enough. Uh, the need is for the effect that alcohol produces. Well, it's so I, I did get a piece of data that um, the number of people that drink to the extent that they would be considered as having an alcohol use disorder mm -hmm. used to be an average of 10%. The recent data that I have from 2022 is it's almost 14%. And the article says it's underreported. So we're looking, I'm not talking about just maybe mild, I'm talking about alcohol use disorder, which probably means a level of dependence mm -hmm. would be over 14%. Mm -hmm. and, and as I said, 14% is low. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is still an issue in our culture and it costs us a lot of money. And a lot of troubled lives and it seems like different people metabolize it in different ways and react in different ways. You know, so some people just are violent. Uh, I, I, I have traveled to the Soviet Union, Russia now, and where it really is a horrible problem. I mean, they even tried to kind of go through prohibition under Gorbachev, which didn't work like it didn't work over here. But what it did to people was just, just terrible, and even what we witnessed when we traveled there. In fact, when we worked with people who were Christians, you know, in the West, you know, who, who we explained or they asked what we felt about the use of alcohol, we just said moderation. They said, we can't, we can't do that. We, we, we can't even do vineyards in our area, even though in the Carpathian Mountains is some of the best wine growing, perfect wine growing territory, you know, in the world. But they said, we can't do it because of what it represents to people. Our people do not know how to drink. Our population does not know how to drink. They drink to get drunk. They don't drink in the way that you describe moderate use. 
Well, I wonder if it's they don't know how is that they are unable because what we know that very often the uh, alcoholism or the inability to properly metabolize alcohol is gen genetic mm -hmm. and we we call that you know then we have a family system that is dependent on alcohol and how many times here where i live we have people who there are family systems there are generational poverty and generational addiction and it's it's a sad state of affairs similar to what you're talking about in russia but what we need to understand is this problem is not a first world problem mm -hmm. and uh, there are uh, you know many many nations face what we do and countries like you know russia for example they blamed it not only on genetics which i could see you know because we know a certain People in this country, when introduced to alcohol or distilled alcohol, just couldn't handle it. But over there, uh, there's other issues of economics and boredom, and, and it's just, just a horrible lifestyle. So you, you have nothing to look forward to the next day. You really don't. You know, you're not getting paid anything. You're not working. Everything, the economy just stinks. And the one thing that produces a little bit of momentary happiness or joy or kick is alcohol. And it could be made from sugar it could be made from other items and I, I don't know i was just very surprised on on my visits there is all the illegal stills that were you know operation little old ladies you know they, they provided extra income you know by <laughs> by distilling the what was needed you know for for vodka well and it provides an um, immediate relief mm -hmm. so you know i i just what we know about the impact of addiction is not just alcohol, but addiction. It dramatically impacts healthcare, law enforcement, the workplace, car crashes, domestic violence. Uh, addiction takes a heavy toll on any culture, not just our culture. So, Myrna, have your has your work shifted? I know that it's was primary around alcohol, but has it shifted to opioids and and other addictions? Well, what it's interesting, I told uh, in that intro there, I mentioned that we do respite care, and that's a person usually that has had an episode of care where they have achieved some level of abstinence and re recovery and have a lapse or relapse, and they come back. And where we are here in Southwest Missouri, I thought the number one drug was going to be methamphetamine. Um, it turns out, and depending on when we do the survey, um, methamphetamine and alcohol are running very close. Opi opioid is a late running third. It's not, it's severe, mind you, in terms of how it impacts the individual, but not in terms of percentages. Now, one thing about alcohol, you know, it's, it's, it's had its historic going thousands of you know years ago uh, effects and it is a known thing. Uh, meth is more of a chemical thing that you know, perhaps, have you worked with meth too? I have to. Okay, I, yeah. I mean, about, as I said, about, it's about 40% alcohol and about 40% methamphetamine. And then the rest, various drugs make up the rest of it. Uh -huh. um, and so the meth, it's, the, it's, I mean, you go from an absolute sedating type medication to an upper, they're very, very different and of course, most people use a little bit of everything, but um, the impact on the human body is both 
but for both is just devastating. And the reasons they use it are the same. And you would describe the reasons as pain, recreation, maybe how would you describe it? Well, it could be to escape, it could be to have fun, to fit in, it and then because you become addicted, it it varies by person, but it's usually somehow related to, of course, people always go from casual use to addiction. They think they can handle it, mm -hmm. and then they can't. Your work has, has really been so inspiring to, to us, you know, who, who work sort of with, in a, as caregivers you know, in the pastoral work, but are not professionals, are not specialized in that way. They, they come into contact with people like that, and I have come into contact with very, very serious alcoholics where people just simply had to have it, you know, just at, at all costs. But I know that there are many stories of sobriety for many, many years, including yours. I mean, your, your, your story is just uh, a, a very... Can you tell us about any other instances that could be inspiring to relate and share with us? I would, you know, and just this morning I was talking with someone that I know has attempted this life child style change three or four times, a young, a young person, and um, he was minimizing the fact that he's been clean and sober for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And what I said was, but two weeks is a miracle. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think that we, it, it provides a foundation of hope for this young man that there's, there is something better and that life is better today than it was two weeks ago. And that's what I think about sobriety is that whether um, there's a book out there called The Change Agent and it's written by a young man that had the world by the tail and was going into the NFL until his life got sidetracked with opioids. Mm -hmm. And and his story of redemption is incredibly inspiring. His name is Dustin West. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a, you know, a headliner and a, a great spokesman for a changed life. And there are lots of others. Mm -hmm. Um I do think some of the more tragic things that I see is our veterans that utilize a substance to deal with their um, combat trauma. Mm -hmm. And they are dying at an alarming rate, including to suicide, but a lot of them use a substance to cope with their past. Mm -hmm. But I think every person that makes that lifestyle change, whether it's for a short time or a long time, really, unless you've been there, you just don't understand what it takes. And I admire anyone who tries and keeps trying to turn their life around. Well, I know that uh, it's uh, it, it's something which a person feels defeated, and perhaps because they tried so many times and nothing seems to be working, can be driven to suicide. Would that be one of the reasons? Yes. Mm -hmm. And... But with veterans, I mean, you know, I, I I really need to know the data, but we're losing veterans to suicide at, at an alarming rate. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are actually using alcohol to achieve that goal. And um, it's disturbing. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's nice. It, it is really beautiful to be able to have people who can understand what these people have, have gone through, uh, what these events in their lives produced, and you know how to, how to cope with that. It just shows the kind of world we live in and the need for another new world to replace this one. That's true, Victor. Very true. Your home, tell us about the operation of it. How does one find you or how do you have people come to you? It's usually just word of mouth. Um, there's a greater need than there are opportunities to get healthy and the home is primarily self-pay. The, the respite care we have been fortunate to have funded through a, 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 a grant through the state of Missouri. But by and large, structured sober housing is a self-pay across the country. We are a part of a national organization called NAR, the National Alliance of Recovery Residences, where we implement health, safety, and ethical standards. Mm -hmm. um, to make sure these places are good, that they are somewhere where you'd want to send your your son or your daughter. And Missouri is an affiliate of NAR, and we're one of the leading affiliates here in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Our it state works with the National Alliance, uh -huh. and we also work very closely with um, the Missouri's Department of Mental Health. How many people do you have working at your place? So the housing is... Um, peer run, meaning we have a lot of people who are in housing that have progressed that help with it, but we do have overnight staff in the house and at respite care, we um, have peer support specialist, which is a designation um, in most states now called certified peer specialist, and they help with the people coming in for respite care, providing them with a listening ear. We help develop a recovery plan a safety plan and a place to transition when they complete their time in respite. I know that I have appreciated you, Myrna, because while you, you've maybe done this as a separate thing, you've sent me inspirational materials from time to time. And one of them was a book that you sent me about courage um, right. by a Supreme Court justice. Scalia. Yeah. yeah Antonin Scalia. Scalia. Yeah. yeah. And I was so impressed by the stories there in, in that book, it really was, that I was given the graduation address for Ambassador Bible College. I actually used one of the stories there because it was so inspiring to me about someone being given, I believe it was the, one of the, the highest awards, uh, if not the very highest, for being a prisoner of war. And you know, it just talked about how sacrificial he was in the work that he did. And I feel like one of the success stories of you is that you really deeply care about the people that you come into contact with and have that very strong desire to make a change with them. It's more than just a place to check in and with no-name people, <laughs> you know, around, but people who really do care. And that seems to be one of the hallmarks of your, your work. Well, I can... I can tell you a story about this work. And I was talking with someone about it before our call. And, you know, when we lose someone, we feel like we have a, a loss, right? We've lost, we not that we were, that we failed, but we did lose someone. And I'll give you an example, and probably as we're wrapping this up, and that is a gentleman came in a couple of years ago and he completed a year in sober housing and he did very well. 
And when he came in, he was a, is a veteran and he um, there had been five of them and something had happened either in Afghanistan or Iraq. It had not, it didn't go well. And when he came in the first time, three of them had committed suicide mm. or death by their own hand, depending on how you want to say that. And, and there were two of them left. And this guy was did quite well and, and left and managed to stay. His primary substance was alcohol, stayed sober for quite a while, and then, you know, had a lapse and came back and stayed about a month. And while somewhere in that interim time, one of the other men um, had death by suicide, which left only him of the five men. And um, a few months later in April, it was a very interesting how the events came together. I was driving to a training about veteran culture and I got the call that he had died and that it had been death by his own hand by using alcohol. Mm -hmm. And wow. he had been found and he was young and he was the last one of the five. Mm -hmm. And you know, what I believe is the time that he was with us, he was able to reestablish a relationship with his daughter. He had watched her graduate from high school. Um, he had been able to achieve some level of peace for a time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't permanent, but that period of time gave him something and gave his daughter something. And that I'm very pleased about, those kinds of things. They don't always turn out well, but for that time, something good came. And I'm grateful to have been a part of his life. Mm -hmm. Well, it uh, sounds like uh, sometimes in the ministry, what we what we go through, we, we go through events in people's lives and live through things. And sometimes the final end does not turn out the best, but we know that for a period in their lives, we did make a difference. And perhaps in the greater context, right. what God has for us, that that will have eternal eternal benefits somewhere and really shows that we really can't change him. It has to be them and God and us all working together. Right. Well, Berna, do you have anything else that you would like to uh, kind of end with here? No, I think we've really covered the core of this is that it's an, a concern that's not going away. It's getting larger as reflected by that number I gave you about the increase of the number of people that have what would be considered an actual alcohol use disorder. Maybe it does have to do with some of what we've been through in the last few years with COVID and other things that it affected the economy, affected the individuals. As a culture, we are seeing its impact as well. Mm -hmm. And to, again, pray that God's grace come and provide the solutions that we need long term. Thank you very much. You are a Thank you. you are a heroine to us, uh, Myrna. You have just really been an inspiration to many, many people. My wife and I. Sometimes we don't uh, hear from you for a period of time, but then when you do write, it's such a pleasant card or note or or encouragement, and we appreciate that of what you do for people all across the board. So thank you very much, Myrna. Well, and thank you, Victor, and my love to you and to Beverly. Okay. Well, we'll be in touch again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to us today on The Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, 
Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. So we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at bcubic at gmail.com. That's B-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.